Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series, Walking Through James Jordan's Book Through New Eyes. And here, the guys will be discussing Chapter 17 on the worlds of exile and restoration. One quick housekeeping note, the first couple of times that Jeff Myers speaks on this episode, his microphone was having some issues, and so there is some clipping. We apologize about that, but we were able to rectify that in the middle of the episode, and so um, just bear with us through this first couple of times he speaks, and then it'll be smooth sailing throughout. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes is in the background doing the recording and editing and doing everything that uh, makes our podcast something that's available and easy to listen to. We are coming to the end of a series of studies in the book, uh, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World, uh, James Jordan's book, book. This is one of the decisive books for a number of us in our understanding of Scripture and our thinking about theological topics in general. It's been a, a major work alongside the Bible. It's been one of the most book, most important books in, in my development and my understanding of Scripture and in my theological work. So we've been we've been going chapter by chapter through the book to uh, introduce some of the major themes, to discuss some of the major themes, and we hope it's been edifying and helpful to you. This week we're talking about chapter seventeen, which is about the exile and the restoration era of Israel's history. As I've explained in a number of podcasts in the latter part of the book, Jim goes through different periods of Israel's history, different covenantal orders. He's identifying what's characteristic of each covenantal order, what's distinctive about it, how it differs from previous covenantal orders. One of the things he's trying to indicate is that there is a progression from glory to glory running through the entire Old Testament period. You start out with the patriarchs, you start out with the world of Noah. You start out with the world of Noah, which is a a post-flood organization of the world that falls at the Tower of Babel. The Lord chooses Abraham, and you have a period of time when you have the patriarchs, and there's a form of worship that's associated with the patriarchs. There's a particular kind of social organization that's associated with the patriarchs. The patriarchs have a particular kind of relationship with Gentiles. And then you come to the end of that period with the exile in and the and the sojourn in Egypt. And when Israel comes out of that in the Exodus, there's a new order of things in the Mosaic order, and it has a distinctive way of worship, and it has a different kind of relationship to the Gentiles. And eventually, they enter the land and set up the Mosaic order of the land. And so, there's continuities between each of these covenantal orders, but there's also important discontinuities. And the discontinuities don't trace a a regression from glory down to lesser glory, but rather a progression. The Mosaic order is better than the patriarchal order in a number of ways, and the, the monarchy and the Davidic order is better than the Mosaic order. And I think one of the places where that pattern and that reading of Old Testament history really comes uh, comes to the fore is in this chapter, chapter 17, which is on the exile and restoration. I think this is one of the more innovative chapters in the book. The exile and restoration period is one of the big, it's a big chunk of Old Testament history. We don't often 
realize this. We know this history, I think, less well than we know the previous history. I know in my own, um, I think of my own Sunday school training when I was in the Lutheran church as a child, as a boy. And I learned all the stories of uh, the book of Genesis. I learned stories of the Exodus. I learned stories of the conquest. I knew about the judges. I knew about the kings. I knew about Elijah and Elisha. I knew about Daniel and Esther and a couple other figures of the exile, but I didn't really understand where they stood in biblical history or what the situation was. And then there was a big chunk of the Old Testament that I just had very little exposure to. I mean, there's a big chunk of the Old Testament that's dealing with this period. Obviously, you have the latter part of Kings and Chronicles. Chronicles is, in fact, written during the restoration period after the exile. Kings is probably written during the exile, or at least compiled during the exile. So, two of the major histories, historical books of the Old Testament are associated with the exile and the restoration. Ezra and Nehemiah are recounting the history of the restoration. You have Esther, which is taking place during the time of the exile. And then Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, four of the five major prophetic books are at the time of the exile or into the uh, into the uh, leaning toward and, and pointing toward the restoration period. And then several of the minor prophets are uh, set in the restoration era or during the exile. So there's a huge amount of literature from this period, and yet it's a portion of the Old Testament that we give uh, relatively little attention to. And it's treated as if it were kind of flyover area. Um, it's not It's not worth attending to very closely. It's mostly a period of decline. Jim talks about it as often being seen as the doldrums that uh, happened before the coming of Christ. So the end of the Davidic era, the, the exile, and then you have 400 years of nothing much happening until Jesus comes. Uh, and Jim shows that that's just not the case. Uh, the the exile and restoration era is another of these covenantal orders, which has continuities and discontinuities with the previous covenantal orders. And one of the things, again, that's innovative is he, he's, he fits the restoration, uh, the exile and the restoration era into this uh, overall narrative of glory to glory. So in certain obvious ways, the exile is a less glorious period than the monarchy in the during the Davidic era. The Davidic covenant, Israel had its own land. They had their own kings, their own rulers. They were independent, and now they're scattered among the Gentiles, and they're ruled by they're ruled by world emperors. When they do have a certain kind of independence in the aftermath of the Maccabean rebellion, they're still under regional emperors or uh, larger empires. They're still in contact with those, and they're not really completely independent. So, they, in politically, they don't look as they don't look as it doesn't look as glorious. Liturgically, it doesn't look as glorious. The second temple is not as glorious as Solomon's original temple. Uh, but Jim is Jim points out various ways in which this is actually an advance. It's actually good for the world and good for the fulfillment of Israel's mission for Israel to be scattered among the Gentiles. There's a new relationship with the Gentiles because Israel is outside the land. And they're setting up synagogues and places of worship, communities uh, all over the Eastern Mediterranean, down into Egypt, uh, as far away as Rome by the time you get to the first century. And that the very fact of their scattering, which is a judgment against their sin, is turned to blessing. It becomes part of the blessing to the Gentiles. And uh, even though Israel doesn't have the same kind of architectural glory, the temple doesn't have the same kind of architectural glory that Solomon's temple had. It still has a spiritual meaning and power uh, greater than that of Solomon. And Jim points to the latter chapters of Ezekiel to make this point that the, the power of this temple and the glory of this temple is so great it can't actually be captured in a physical in a physical building. 
it's captured only in this great vision that Ezekiel gives us uh, in the latter part of his prophecy. So again, the, uh, we, we'll talk about a lot of the details in in more depth, but I think the the overall trajectory I think of this of this chapter is particularly innovative. The book as a whole is very innovative, but this particular chapter just brought out this period of Israel's history in a way that I had never seen anywhere else, and gave it the gave it the attention that it really deserves. You mentioned Sunday school, your Sunday school and Lutheran church, Peter, in seminary. We really didn't spend any time on this period in Israel's history, hardly at all. And like you, it was actually came into contact with Jim and read this book or heard him lecture. I can't remember what came first that I recognized, wow, this time, this whole new arrangement, this covenantal arrangement, um, social, uh, spiritual, ritual arrangement, preparation for the new world that Jesus would bring in. I mean, you'll hear this often with with people that, you know, the Roman roads were there to prepare the way for the gospel moving out into the Gentile world. But it's much more than that, as you, you mentioned, so much more than that. And that's the thing that is brought out here in this chapter. Some of that um, optimism, if that's the right word for it, that's um, associated with the return from exile and um, and and the restoration from then on that also seems to be um anticipated doesn't it in books like um jeremiah let's say or daniel jeremiah particularly um kind of seems to see the exile yes as this great disaster but at the same time as this new beginning where um the uh, the jews are, are not just kind of scattered in the sense of dispersed but scattered in in the sense of sown and the image of them being planted in new lands and and growing there in different ways um, seems to be quite um, fundamental to what's going on and obviously we have the stories of of Daniel um, woven into that and so um, Jim's view of of the um, period after the exile um, and, and moving onwards just seems to fit in well for me at least with the tenor of uh, a lot of the of jeremiah and ezekiel and and so forth um and ezekiel of course is something that uh jim particularly goes through in in detail and, and shows how that fits into it yeah i think that sewing image it it reminds me of what the lord does with simeon and levi in the aftermath of the, the slaughter at shechem back in the book of genesis levi is scattered throughout the tribes it's not levi doesn't inherit a tribal property and yet that becomes a blessing to the entire nation and even a blessing to Levites because now they're privileged to be the priestly people. They're scattered and they minister to the rest of the tribes throughout the land. So now you have that that same kind of principle that's ratcheted up onto a, a almost not a global scale, but in a, a, uh, an imperial scale. And uh, Israel as a whole has become kind of like a Levitical people that's scattered out among the Gentiles. It's worth bearing in mind that from... Um, the period of the exile, and even before then, um, a significant proportion of the Jews were living outside of the land, the majority after the exile, and about 10% of the population of the Mediterranean scattered all over were Jews. And so by the time that we reach the mission of Paul, he's going to places that have already been prepared, where people have already encountered Jews. And 
this is also worth bearing in mind when we think about the ancient world. We can often have this idea of Greek and Roman civilization as existing in one world, and then we have the world of the Jews being very distinct from that. But yet there'll be all this cross-pollination occurring, and we shouldn't be surprised if um, many great classical thinkers and philosophers and writers would have had access to and influence from Jews and vice versa. There was a cultural exchange taking place that prepares the way for much that we see in the mission of the early church. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important part of the story for this period. And uh, uh, just a, another dimension of that, I think it's it's uh, interesting to compare the interactions between the, the major figures during the exile, the major Jewish figures during the exile, and the emperors that they encounter. So, and, and compare that to the situation with Moses and Pharaoh. Moses confronts Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve you in the wilderness. Pharaoh, I do not know this Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? And uh, a series of plagues, and Pharaoh is forced to let the people go. Uh, he never listens. He hardens his heart against Moses and against the Lord. And when you get to the book of Daniel and Esther and Ezra, you have a very different kind of relationship between the Jewish leaders and the imperial powers. Uh, you still have intransigent, intransigent powers, uh, intransigent embers like uh, Belshazzar in Daniel 5. But Nebuchadnezzar is compliant. He listens to Daniel. And Darius later in the book of Daniel listens to Daniel. Uh, Cyrus willingly lets the people go. And he Cyrus is not plundered like like Pharaoh was. Cyrus kind of self-plunders. He gives he gives Israel stuff back to them so they can go out and and uh, restore the temple and restore the temple system. So there's a something has happened between the Exodus and this new kind of so this new kind of exile where the Gentiles have become more open to the the word of the of the Jews. It's part of that cross-pollination that Alistair is describing. There's just a different a different kind of political situation. Again, it's anticipating the coming of the of the church and the new covenant. Yeah, and I wonder if that's part of the reason why, um, as you were saying, Peter, the post-exilic period isn't so well known because we're used to reading through Kings and Chronicles and we can get the shape of it and it's all set in roughly the same place. But then suddenly we've got disparate stories. We've got Daniel off in Babylon, we've got Esther, and until you sit down and work it out, it's not entirely clear how they fit together um, chronologically. You've then got Nehemiah coming back from somewhere, Ezra coming back from somewhere, and the chronology of Ezra itself is quite difficult at places. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why um, why people kind of know that bit of history less well. And yet at the same time, uh, it obviously reflects this kind of more dispersed and more uh, kind of or less localized phase of history that that Jim is summing up here in this chapter. We might also think about the ways that many of the characters of this period are modeled after the character of Joseph and Joseph going down into Egypt, the way that he saves the Egyptians from the famine and also his own people. We can think of the example of Mordecai and the way that he's described at the end of that book of Esther or the way that he's described earlier on um, day after day being tempted or asked something in the same way as Joseph was asked by Potiphar's wife. He's asked about why he's not bound to Haman. And these other clues that 
this is a paradigm in which these characters are being seen or Daniel of course is a great advisor to um the various emperors of his day and even in Ezra we see some of these elements of Joseph come out and in Nehemiah and it seems that that character of Joseph who can look to the great emperor of his day as someone to appeal to as some sort of um chief counselor of the rulers and the authorities that is a position that is opened up for the Jews at this period in history so if they were just in their own land they would not be able to exercise the sort of influence that they can as they're scattered among the nations and rising up to the very highest of heights so that this is a flowering of the prophetic vocation of Israel and not just to emperors world emperors although that's certainly true but also locally. An interesting thing when you get in the book of Acts and Paul is going out to all these cities, there's Jews, there's synagogues in all these cities, but often the Jews are, have a prominent place in local governments and they advisors. They're a source of wisdom, a source of law and order, or they ought to be. It seems like by the time Paul gets to many of these places, they're not anymore in the Roman world, in these local communities, a source of law and order, but of chaos and anarchy. Uh, they stir, they stir up, uh, uh, and they try to influence the local leaders to imprison Paul and, and, and worse. A great example of this is Acts 13, where Paul goes down to Cyprus and you got Sergius Paulus there. He's got a, he's got a magi, a wise man, a Jew, uh, who turns out to be a wormy tongue kind of character. Well, he is replaced then by Christians. What it tells you is that you have these Roman local officials who are looking to the Jews for advice, for counsel. And if you think about that, that's, that's serious cross-pollinization going on, not just at the upper echelons of the empire, but all across the inhabited world. I'm also thinking and remembering that in Roman history, you know, we have we have record of Herod and Herod's children, but a lot of people don't realize that the Herods spent their time, their childhood, a lot of them raised up in Rome. And the Roman emperors wanted Jewish children there. Part of that was to quell their rebellion. They, they were at this time period, they tended to be rebellious, but also there was interaction between them in terms of uh, knowledge and, and law and, and wisdom. That worked both ways, of course. The Herods tended to want to be like Rome, and that didn't serve them very well. But there's this expansion of the prophetic ministry of the Jews during this time. I guess one, one, uh, one thing we should dispel, one, one idea we should dispel about this period uh, is the idea that there's a 400-year period of silence in uh, in Israel's history, that between the end of the Old Covenant revelation in the in the prophets until the coming of Jesus and the writing of the Gospels, we have a period of silence. And there's that's true. We don't have any scripture added during that period. There we have documents. Um, many of the documents of the apocrypha are filling out the details of what went on during that period. Uh, but I think the the misconception is that that's somehow a deviation from the norm, uh, and that prior to that period you had a steady flow of books that are being added to the canon 
from Genesis on up to Zechariah and Malachi, and then uh, and then it stops. But that's not in fact the case. What we have is something more like I've I've thought about it in terms of uh, the the evolutionary idea of punctuated equilibrium. Stephen Jay Gould's idea of how evolution operates. So you have this burst of life, and then there's a period of slow development and a burst of life. And the the canon takes formation in something like the same way. There's a there's a burst of revelation in the Mosaic period, but then uh, much of what we think of the the the, the books that uh, cover the intervening period uh, are not written. There some of them are written. I mean, obviously, Ruth is written at a time when David is already a prominent figure, uh, and uh, the Book of Judges makes sense as a book that's written uh, in the period just before the rise of the monarchy. So you have a period from Moses until the latter part of the Judges or the beginning of the monarchy when there is there are no additional books added to the Bible. I, I, I don't have the top of my head how many years that is, but it's it's some considerable time when you don't have any new revelation, uh, new inscripturated revelation. And then the same thing happens during the period of the monarchy. You have the books that cover the period of the monarchy are compiled or written later than the events that they record. Uh, I think that uh, Kings is obviously drawing on some court records, but Kings isn't compiled until Israel goes into exile because uh, the, the exile is the last scene of uh, of the book of of Second Kings, and so uh, so the there's the, that's the pattern that is the pattern of Old Testament revelation. The canon takes form over a uh, period of centuries, but there are centuries of uh, as so called silence in between. And you have the same thing at the end of uh, end of the Old Testament canon. That uh, so it's, that's not that's not a, that's not outside the norm. That's been the normal pattern throughout throughout that history. That's an interesting point. I mean, you've even got the kind of the dark period, really, haven't you? Um, midway through Exodus one, in that you've got the people um, Jacob and his sons arriving in Egypt, and then hundreds of years after Joseph's, Joseph's death and the rise of a pharaoh who doesn't remember um, Joseph. So you, you've got a kind of a, a long kind of black spell there where we, we've got very little insight into what's um, uh, what's transpired. I, I wonder if kind of an interesting way of thinking about it might be the um, the relative density of um, of prophetic text so i haven't kind of thought this through particularly well so I'm, I'm largely just thinking about it as we go but after let's say elisha and uh, elijah and elisha rather you you will have kind of joel and hosea and amos and then some other kind of prophets and then obviously moving on to towards the tail end of the period of the Kings, Jeremiah, um, Daniel, Ezekiel, etc. It feels like you would have a reasonably even spread of inputs of prophetic um, uh, prophetic word over those few hundred years. Um, but then you have, then you will have a kind of um, a dark patch of of is it right to say no prophetic voice over those few hundred years? Well, maybe no recorded or no inscripturated prophetic voice. I mean, that's that's the there might have been prophets in all of these intervening periods, but they're just it doesn't add anything to the canon. But yeah, that's right. in, that's interesting that you do have some other gap periods even within in smaller uh, smaller uh, parts of Israel's history. Something that I found um, very interesting and and 
stimulating going through this chapter was um 200 uh, sorry page 249 and um i probably won't summarize this particularly well so i'll i'll need your your guys help but the progression that we've spoken about in terms of moving from glory to glory um jim summarizes that but via a whole different sort of strand of thought so via the imagery of of water and this is building particularly off the back of um ezekiel 47 and the river flowing out of the temple but he kind of traces the flow of water and the extent to which kind of water flows out from um israel he, he traces his sort of expansion of, of of the word in in terms of water so um halfway or towards the start of that page to 249 he, he talks about eden we, we met it in eden he, he says like this river of god where it flowed out as four rivers to water um the whole earth and then he talks about that being um restricted or or, or that world like it's being destroyed in 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 the flood and then this outflow of water beginning again so he talks about how the patriarchs um ministered and they dug wells um, and set up oasis sanctuaries um he says for them the water was down in the ground and had to be brought up um but then he moves on to the tabernacle with the labor of cleansing and says there was still no outflow um but at least the water was brought to surface level um that the next stage and that's the temple of solomon where Jim says we get closer to a river, we have a huge bronze ocean, um, higher and fuller than the earlier laver. It's interesting, by the way, that all those water sources mentioned are, are named. Um, the rivers are named uh, in Eden. The patriarchs name the wells, which is unusual. You know, the Bronze Sea has a name, etc. But um, anyway, um, Jim then sort of goes on through Solomon and then talks about the world of the restoration which we're on um now where he says the bronze ocean is tipped over um there is no labor or ocean in ezekiel's temple but it, it has become a river flowing out and i just found that whole um way in which jim puts the message that he's put um often throughout the book uh, but just kind of reframes it all in terms of this flow of water from israel from the temple outwards i i found that to be really fascinating and and stimulating as, as a thought the connections that he draws also really prepare you to understand a number of the ways that these themes are picked up within the new testament and although at the end of the book you only have a very short treatment of the new testament you actually get so much insight into the new testament from just reading his treatment of the old and so the themes of waters flowing out really make you think of that theme within John, um, where Christ talks about offering living water with the emphasis upon water with the um, out of his belly will come rivers of living water. And then all these other themes throughout the book. It seems that that is the sort of thematic route that John's working with. And then when you go back to the Old Testament, you see it's there all along. It's there in the um, it's there in the water from the rock. It's there in the um, water in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then in the courtyard of the temple with the um, ten water chariots coming out. And then, of course, within Ezekiel's temple and in the vision of um, 
of Zechariah. In every single one of these, you see this image developing. And then, of course, it comes to a more overt expression within the book of Revelation. And so having this knowledge of this cluster of Old Testament themes and images, um, it helps when you see the New Testament in light of that, that these things are not foreign. This is not a text that has produced its images it's not a bolt from the blue sky or it's not a created whole piece. It's something that is already there. It's picking up these themes and it's presenting itself as the fulfillment of all of those. Even just the fact that we obviously pick up the New Testament story largely with Jesus on the uh, banks of the Sea of Galilee and the imagery of fishing and fishermen and, and, and so forth. So much of that is, is framed, isn't it, by what Jim says about the Old Testament here, that that shift from uh, land and shepherds, that shift in imagery to the Sea of, of Galilee and fishermen. I'm not as familiar with studies on Ezekiel, um, but is Jim's understanding of Ezekiel 40 and on and the temple, that visionary temple, he applies it to the restoration period. If I remember right, don't most commentators just see this as an eschatological vision, a vision of, um, you know, the end, the end times, the new heavens and new earth or something like that. And so when you do that, I think Elster's point is a great one. Uh, when you do something like that, you don't, you're not alert to the way in which uh, these visions are fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, and, and I'm, it may be that Jim's understanding of the temple is, is, uh, is new. Does anybody know? My guess is that, uh, Jim would be able to point to older commentators who, uh, took the position that he did. That was often what I discovered after I had, he had said something that I thought was completely new. And he said, oh, well, this is, this was common knowledge back in the 19th century. If you look at some of these long forgotten uh, commentators, so I'm I'm I don't know, but I'm guessing that there would be some some source for it. I think that's also I was going to make the point about that. that I think that's a striking way to deal with those passages, and he does it not just for the temple visions of Ezekiel forty to forty eight, but he starts with the uh, the passages about the uh, the the renewal of the land and the the replacement of the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and the land turning back into the garden that starts in Ezekiel 36 and the, and the dry bones being risen from the dead and the conflicts of Gog and Magog uh, in 38 and 39, that leads on to the visions of the temple. But that whole, that whole section of Ezekiel, he sees as promise of the new covenant to use Jeremiah's terminology, but it's a promise of the new covenant in the phase that it takes in the form that it takes after the exile. So that's one of the one of the innovations that he recognizes that there is a a first fulfillment of the new covenant promise at the time of the return. And then what happens with Jesus and the spirit is the fulfillment of that new order, that new covenant that God had set up. So there's a kind of two phase, at least a two phase kind of coming of the covenant. And I think that what that does is it it gives a concrete this, I think this is kind of what you were getting at, Jeff. It gives a concrete uh, historical focus to those prophecies. Instead of projecting them off into a far distant future and instead of completely spiritualizing them, or on the other hand, instead of thinking 
these are literal prophecies about Israel being restored to the land and building another temple, but that's going to happen sometime in the future. I mean, the, the dispensational option that you you project you project these prophecies as literal prophecies, but they're going to be fulfilled in the future. Instead of saying either of those, Jim is saying, yeah, they're literal prophecies. There are they're prophesying things that are going to actually happen in human history, and that have happened in human history uh, in that new covenant phase uh, after the exile. There actually was a restoration to the land. There actually was a resurrection. Ezekiel 37 is very clear that it's the resurrection is the resurrection of uh, Israel and Judah as a single as a single people from the death of exile. And there really is a great and grand new temple, but it's not exactly the the physical temple in Jerusalem. It's the the physical temple in Jerusalem as part as a symbol and part of the the life of the people now exalted and and spread out as a living temple spread out throughout the Mediterranean. So I think that giving that historical focus by seeing a first fulfillment of the new covenant, I think that's one of the one of the really striking and innovative things. And again, to answer your specific question, my guess is that he could Jim could point to people who have said this and he's drawing on their insight. That makes sense. I I just pulled uh, two commentaries off my shelf, modern commentaries, not older ones. And both of them, uh, at the beginning of their discussion about uh, this section in Ezekiel, said that uh, this was Eze- Ezekiel's plan was for them to actually build this. That's why there's so much detail. And when they returned from exile, they just didn't do it. Um, and, and I mean, that's, but, and these, these two commentators uh, don't go in for the so-called double fulfillment or triple fulfillment it has to it has to be literally fulfilled and so this never was now i'm sure i i've read through the commentaries in, in detail but i'm sure they're going to make some applications to us but um the idea that this was uh meant to be uh constructed a, a genuine architectural uh you know blueprint um that then wasn't um, I get at least from these two commentators seems to be a modern view. Yeah, and so that would lend itself to a a, a view of the restoration era as a as a as a disappointment. It's a failure, and it's also one of the problems behind this is a failure to understand the sort of language and symbolism that Ezekiel is deploying. This is not. Um, it's the idea that since we have this complicated symbolism. We must see this as something that's either spiritualized or referring to something that must be in the future in a very literal um, outworking. But something can refer to very concrete realities in a symbolic way. And it's that relationship that I think many modern commentators struggle to capture well, um, that Ezekiel's temple is referring to a concrete reality, but not literally referring to that concrete reality literally. And I think it helps if you connect what Ezekiel is seeing and what is happening to Ezekiel with earlier temple building episodes. Um, Ezekiel 40, verse 2, in the visions of God, he brought me out into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. That's right at the beginning of the sequence of visions. And he's on a mountain and he's viewing uh, a grand temple vision, and he's viewing the redistribution of the land and a rebuilding of the city. But he's in the same kind of position that Moses is when Moses receives his vision or whatever he saw on the on Sinai 
that gave him the template and the model for the tabernacle. And it's similar to what uh, David receives. He receives a tabnet, a uh, a pattern that's going to be replicated in the temple. And that's what we're that's what we're seeing in Ezekiel. It's like um, what what uh, what Ezekiel gives us is some something like a, a visionary version of what Moses must have seen on Sinai. Yeah, I get the sense that one of the things Jimmy's saying is that the visions we have in Ezekiel and um, Zechariah, particularly, are the the kind of spiritual uh, the way spiritually we're meant to see and interpret the narratives in the Old Testament, and that's something we should be familiar with to some extent. I mean, we have pairs of um, text such as Judges four and five, let's say, where we have a uh, an account of a battle in Judges four and in Judges five, the same, well, again, a battle, but in more spiritual terms. And so with the powers and principalities described differently in, in terms of stars and with the coming of the Lord um, uh, described in all sorts of different ways. And um, uh, it, it, it seems that, I can't remember the exact terminology, um, Jim used, but I think he refers to the restoration visions of Ezekiel as the kind of the blue, the interpretative blueprint or, or, or something like that behind um, what is uh, being worked out in history. And I find that interpretive blueprint idea perhaps especially powerful in Jim's treatment of the visions of um, Zachariah. I've found no one to treat those visions as well as Jim Jim does in this place and also within his um, audio series on the book. It just puts into place all that's taking place within the um, history of the time, what the people are doing, the the obstacles that they're facing, and what the Lord is doing throughout everything. Um, Once you begin to see this relationship between the vision and the concrete reality, it really does give the concrete reality a lot more of a a punch you begin to recognize that god is doing something amazing in this period of hit of history and you would not truly realize that unless something of the firmament you'd gone above the firmament and seen part of what's taking place within this visionary um presentation yeah which kind of shouldn't surprise us should it i mean that's truly the whole point of a prophetic book to state what is almost staring people in the face, but they haven't realized or at least done in anything about. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to point to Zechariah too. I agree with you, Alistair, that uh, Jim's presentation is really, really uh, helpful. Uh, the, uh, the night visions are particularly what he's focused on, which is occupies Zechariah one through six. And uh, one of the things I think is really important. I just want to reiterate what you said, Alistair. And that is he's trying to put his Zechariah's prophecy in the context of Zechariah's life and ministry. And we know what that context is very explicitly from uh, Ezra. uh, Haggai and Zechariah appears characters in the book of Ezra. Uh, They're the ones who encourage the people to go back to work on the temple. Uh, The people have gone back into the land. They've started rebuilding the temple, but then they are opposed by the residents of the land. Uh, There's an exchange of letters between the residents of the land and the Persian emperors and there's a suppression of the of the work, and uh, the 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 work on the temple which had begun uh, suddenly stops. And Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets who incite Israel to keep going on that temple building project. 
So putting it in that context it makes it very concrete. So some in some way, the visions that Zechariah is seeing are a way of thinking about what's going to happen, what, what Israel is supposed to do in building the temple, and what's going to happen when they when they do eventually build the temple. There are a couple of things that I think are really fascinating in Jim's presentation of Zechariah. One is um, he draws on a fairly recent commentator on Zechariah, uh, whose last name is Peterson. I can't think of his first name. Uh, to explain what's happening in Zechariah 3, for example, where Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan is at his side, accusing him. And uh, Peterson talks about that as a catch-22 situation, which is which is the conundrum that Israel is in when they come back from exile. In order to purify the temple, they need a priest who is pure and, and consecrated. But in order to consecrate a priest, you need to do that uh, with a temple rites. And so you need an existing temple. So you can't start the priesthood back without the temple. You can't start the temple back without the priesthood. And what you have in Zechariah 3 is the Lord intervening from outside the system to kind of reboot the whole system. And he declares Zechariah to be or Joshua to be cleansed. He's going to be a clean high priest. That means that you have a clean high priest who's going to be able to oversee the uh, the the uh, the uh, establishment of the temple. Uh, the dedication of the temple, and the sanctification of the temple, uh, he's going to be able to do that because he's now a sanctified priest. So uh, putting that vision, you can you can find other other dimensions of that vision, but putting that vision in the middle of, in the context of Zechariah's time and, and ministry highlights exactly what the problem is. And then that also, you think about what happens, if you, if you take literally that Zechariah is seeing these visions as a sequence of visions at night, that he's receiving these from the Lord, it's, these are not visions that anyone else sees. And then the next morning he goes out to the people and he announces these visions and he says, we need to get back we need to get back on the temple uh, to working on the temple. They say, we, we can't. we don't have a we don't have a consecrated high priest. And he says, oh no, I, I saw in a vision at night that the that Joshua has been reconsecrated as a high priest. He's now qualified to oversee the rites of dedication for this new temple. We can go ahead with this project. And the prophetic word has to, the people have to trust that prophetic word from Zechariah in order to get back on the temple and, and believe that uh, what he says has actually happened. So uh, again, there's a, a concreteness to what Zechariah's prophecies mean for the people. They actually, if if in fact Zechariah, uh, Joshua has been cleansed, then the people do have every reason and and every right to get back to the temple. They have all the equipment they need to get back to the temple project. But they have to they have to trust that that word of the prophet. So I think yeah, putting putting all of these and, and we could go through all of Zechariah's prophecies the way Jim interprets them, and all of them have that kind of uh, that kind of uh, direct connection with the the circumstances of the Restoration era. I wonder if I could just jump back slightly, and um, I, I wanted to try and express exactly what um, Jim is saying about Ezekiel's vision because. Um, I wonder if the way we explained it, it might have sounded like Jimmy saying the exiles get back and then they build this sort of small, rather inglorious temple. And yet spiritually, that is Ezekiel's temple. And so bang, it, it's done. And um, I get the impression that Jim's idea is that the Ezekiel's temple is a picture of a whole phase of history, which is slowly kind of expanding and almost like Daniel's uh, altar stroke mountain sort of growing to fill um, the world, which um, 
Jim says, I think, is beginning with the return from exile and then gradually sort of that vision is gradually being filled up um, as time goes on. Do you, do you think that's kind of roughly a, a right way of um, p- parsing what's being said here? Yeah, I think so. I, I I think you're right that it would be a mistake to think that this that the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision is just in the rebuilding of the t- the second temple. Uh, I think part of it is that the the temple is also describing the human temple, which is taking shape over a longer period of time. And maybe one way to hi- highlight that uh, that 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 phase or that aspect of the prophecy is to go back to what you said about the the river that's flowing through the flowing from the temple. The temple becomes a, a water source. The water goes out to the land and renews the land. Trees begin to grow along the side of the river. The river flows out to the Dead Sea and uh, refreshes the Dead Sea and brings dead fish back to life. So you, th- clearly you're talking about uh, that's not just something that happens in a in an event. That's something that's happening during the course of uh, the entire period after the, after the exile. So yeah, I think the whole vision I think you can see is that I think there's a kind of initial fulfillment when Israel reoccupies the land and they rebuild the temple. But the the larger picture, the larger vision, or the larger fulfillment is the rebuilding of the people. It's easy to skip over the summary pages at the end of each chapter in Jim's book. <clears throat> but this one in particular, I think, is very helpful. And so if you're reading through, uh, through New Eyes and you come to this, you should stop and read um, his summary at the end about the new names and the grant and the promise and the stipulation and the social and political um, kind of summaries. This really makes, uh, it kind of brings it all together. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the podcast, sets you up for uh, what's going to happen, what God is going to do in the new covenant. And one of the things that uh, Haggai talks about is when the temple is finished, uh, uh, that temple, that first temple that they were going to build when they get get back in the land, that God is going to begin to shake things up, shaking up heaven and earth, uh, uh, a, a social, uh, political kind of earthquake. Um, and that happens. But then it's also going to happen, as we know from uh, Hebrews 12, it's going, it's going to happen again. Uh, yet once more uh, with the coming of Jesus and the apostolic mission. Um, And so, again, as we started off, this will help you, this this, um, summary here will help you understand uh, what's coming then in the next chapter in the new world. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.